everybody, this is David Dwight, Senior Pastor at Hope Church RVA, and you're listening to the Hope Sermons Podcast. I'm excited about our current series called More Than Words, a 90-day overview of the entire Bible. Thanks for joining us as we learn more about God, ourselves, and how He's redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. What if, what if I told you, what if it was possible for you to become a more compassionate person, a more sincere person, a person to whom life means more, and a person to whom people mean more? What if I told you you could become a person of greater understanding, you could become freed from yourself, and really you could become more beautiful. If that opportunity was available to you, I wonder if you would would like to have that opportunity. What if the way that would happen would be through experiencing hardship and pain and suffering, right? So this presents us a bit of a dilemma, doesn't it? Because the invitation, would you like to become a person who's more compassionate, sincere, and so on, to whom life and people mean more? Would you like that? I think most of us are like, yes, I would like that. Well, how about if pain or suffering is the way that that happens, then we're like, no, I would not like that. Like, thank you for the invitation, my RSVP, as I respectfully decline the invitation. But here's the thing, friends, suffering and pain comes along in our lives for all of us. And when suffering comes along, it does bring invitations with it, beautiful invitations. They're hard. You note when I'm using these words, I'm not saying easy invitations. I'm not saying simple smiley face emoji invitations. They're hard, but they're beautiful. And how we respond to those invitations will be significant in our lives. So this morning, we're looking at the book of Job. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that this is a story about a man who experienced deep anguishing, pain, and suffering. If you're less familiar with the Bible, this story takes us into deep places of trying to sort out life and who God is and what does faith mean in the midst of all these challenges. So if we're doing this broad sweep through the Bible, I want to give you a little bit of context. The Jewish people, I think, have a slightly different perspective of God than perhaps many of us do. And what I might offer to you is, I think it's possible that the Jewish perspective is that God is more significant, more substantial, more mysterious, more holy, more awesome than perhaps we have tended to think of God. In the Jewish mindset, it's Of course, I can't speak for everybody, but in general, the idea of God is that he's high and holy and above us, that his ways are not our ways. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he wants to know us. But I think for many of us, our sense of God is a little different than that. 
The Jewish people take this understanding of God so seriously that they don't even write the word, the name God, in writing. Literally, it would be G, and then they'd put a dash, and then D. Because the name of God is so holy, so high and lifted up. Yes, mysterious, beautiful, powerful, that to just write his name down would assume that somehow we've kind of made him ours in a way that's not possible. For some of us, the idea of God kind of comes through when we pray and we might say, hey, what's up, God? This is what's going on in my world. And that would be pretty different than the Jewish mindset. So when we're talking about the book of Job, it might be helpful to us to realize this Jewish perspective. So let me read you two little sections from Job. One is early-ish on in his journey and his challenges and his hardships. And the other one is much later on after he's been through a great deal of depth and hardship. In Job chapter 9, as Job is beginning to experience his pain and he's crying out to God, he says, he's not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. In the challenge of his pain, Job is working through this sense that there's an injustice involved here. And I think for many of us, when life has real deep pain, there often is this sense that this is unjust. Well, after many trials and deep places of suffering, in Job 42, we get this expression from Job, a confession of sorts. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then this towering phrase from Job, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. That's what he says after he's gone through these deep crucibles of suffering. <clears throat> suffering comes to all of us to varying degrees in different times of life. And I think it's possible that if you're here this morning and you've experienced some pretty deep suffering, there may be a little thing in you that's saying, I appreciate that we're talking about this and perhaps it can be helpful to me. If you're here this morning and you've experienced perhaps quite little suffering, it's possible that there's a little thing going on inside of you that says, do we have to talk about this this morning? I wish we weren't talking about this. Suffering confronts all of us in various ways throughout the course of our lives, and it doesn't matter where you live, it doesn't matter what country you're from, it doesn't matter your culture, your ethnicity, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, pain and hardship and suffering will come to us. Some interesting things, I think, happen as we experience life in this way. When suffering or deep hardship is, let's say, new in our lives, like we haven't really experienced much of it before, and now we're having to, having to move through and encounter this, I, I think we have a tendency to think, mine is much harder than yours. Like we think about the difficulty and the challenge that we're in. 
And then we hear about what other people have experienced. And we got this little thing in us. It's like, you know, mine is really hard. Yours, yours doesn't sound that hard. Once we begin to have a lot more experience, I think, with, with pain, we begin to be changed in our engagement. And after a while, when we hear of other people's pain and suffering, that old sense, that doesn't sound as hard as mine, begins to morph a bit. And I think we begin to say things like, I'm really sorry, that sounds really hard. The internal engagement becomes different as we're being reshaped. One of the things about suffering is that it confronts our false ideas. It confronts falseness. It confronts false ideas that we have of ourselves. It confronts false ideas that we have about life. And it confronts false ideas that we have about God. But here's the thing. Suffering doesn't show up and send you a text and say, hey, I'm on my way. And by the way, when I come, you're going to want to journey through your false ideas because this is what I bring with me. It doesn't send you that text. It doesn't tell you that that's the way it works. But suffering confronts what's false. Suffering also confronts what's superficial in our lives. Maybe you could say what's sort of satirical or sarcastic or superficial. Suffering will confront all these things. And when it does, it usually creates a crisis for us. The crisis begins to press in on things like, this is not the way I imagined God to be. This is not the way I thought life was going to go. It begins to press into our sense of ourselves. And oftentimes when we have this sense of injustice, like I don't deserve this, that I don't deserve this thing is confronting maybe some false ideas about what we thought of ourselves. Like I somehow am special or should be exempt from hardship or pain. But here's the thing. Part of being human is that we are going to experience hardship and pain. Abraham Heschel is a rabbi who lived and wrote in the 1900s, and I've been reading some of his stuff lately, Abraham Heschel said, he who has not suffered, what can he know? So suffering will confront what is false. Another thing that I've learned about suffering, and my wife Elizabeth and I have talked about this quite a bit, is if you're a relatively young person and you experience some real pain and suffering, it becomes a maturation accelerator. Like hardship and pain, particularly if you're young, it'll make you grow up faster than your peers. You'll begin to have perspectives and maturity about life and situations and people that if you've had these kinds of hardships, generally your peers, let's pick your early 20s, have not experienced that. These things become maturation accelerators. And so you didn't know it when you were standing in line at Starbucks again with somebody next to you who's like 23 as well, that they're 23, but you're 43, even though you're 23 because of the maturation accelerators. Sometimes it's those acute experiences of pain and suffering. Sometimes it's other things that might be less acute, but they're part of your life. We think occasionally about our family, Elizabeth's sister and her husband, and they have a son who has Down syndrome. And we've talked about this a lot. To be siblings who have grown up with a sibling who has Down syndrome, you're just going to be a more mature person. You're going to see life differently. You're going to experience it differently. You've learned love, compassion, patience, and a lot of 
mature things that people that didn't have that situation aren't going to know. So in a sense, the hardships, yes, the acute ones, but sometimes maybe what we might call the more ordinary ones, they're going to be maturation accelerators. So when hardship comes and when the pain comes into our lives, whatever is false or superficial is going to be exposed, and this is usually going to create a crisis for us. This is kind of the entry point of what happens when we begin to experience pain. What is false or superficial? About what? About what we thought about God, about what we thought about ourselves, about how we envisioned life would go. And generally speaking, when we come to this fork in the road, we've got this invitation into a deeper truth, or the other fork in the road is to stay the superficial, because I don't like the crisis that's coming with this invitation. So suffering, among the many things it will do, it will tend to either make us move closer and more deeply toward God and into that hardship, or it will make us take the choice and say, I'm not going there. I'm either chucking my faith or I'm doing the superficial thing because this isn't what I thought it would be. Part of the remarkable story of Job is how he stays the course with God through the excruciating experiences of his suffering. Of his suffering. So when Job says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, he's saying, the false construction that I had of you has been dismantled, and now I see you, God. I think it's possible that what Job is saying is, I had ideas about you, I had been taught religion about you, and I had faith in that. I had faith... I thought it was in you, but what I'm learning now that suffering has brought these challenging crucibles, what I'm learning is I actually had faith in my faith. And so when these ideas that I had about you, which aren't true, were getting pressed in and exposed because of the challenges of the hardship, this really rocked my world. Like I didn't know what to do because the things that I thought I believed to be true appear not to be. And now I think what Job would say is, I think what I'm learning is, I don't think I had faith in you, God. I think I had faith in my faith. I think I had faith in my ideas of you, the religious life that I'd been taught. But now, God, I've seen you face to face. He moves from a man who has faith in his faith to faith in God himself. So when hardship comes, we will either turn toward God or turn away from him. This is a normal thing that happens Somebody mentioned a little while ago that real suffering is suffering without authority. And when I first heard that phrase, it seemed a little obtuse to me, but I was intrigued by it and I wanted to learn more about it. What it was suggesting was without authority means when something is so hard that we can't fix it. We can't solve it. We don't have authority over it. When we've got a difficulty in our life and we can solve it, either by the contacts we have, the people we know, the money we've got, the resources available. If we can solve it, then in a sense, we have authority over it. So it's not suffering in the same way. It's a problem to be solved, and we pursue the levers that we've got, and we solve it. That's different than suffering in the way we're talking about it. Suffering like this, the way Job experiences it, and the way many of us have experienced it, is when I don't have authority over it. In other words, this thing is bigger than me. I can't make it go away. I can't solve it. This is part of the anguish. And of course, in the big picture, the thing that is the big one is death. We don't have authority over it, at least at some point in our lives. We may be fortunate 
And something that might have taken someone's life 100 years ago when we didn't have the medical care or we didn't have the resources to address it, back then they didn't, quote, have authority over it, but now we do because we've got ways to solve it. But still, a day is going to come, regardless of our age, when we will not have authority over death. It will be bigger than we are. In a handful of different memorial services and burial services that I've done recently, I've thought particularly in the graveside services when you stand and you look at a hole in the ground with a casket, our souls are disoriented. Our souls don't quite know what to do with this moment, what we're seeing, the visceral experience that's before us. I think it's because our souls are made to live eternally, so when they see this death, our souls are disoriented because we're looking at something that we don't have authority over with and this death, at least this earthly life death, We don't have authority over it. And so it's really significant when we read Jesus saying in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, even over death. So when we're at the grave, death is bigger than us, but it's not bigger than him. And so we place the hope of our souls in the one for whom it's not bigger Remember when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, it was after his resurrection. Many of us are used to hearing what comes next, which is, therefore, go make disciples of all nations. But in talking with some friends recently, I've said, I think we do well to tie it to John 11, where he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, said Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. But suffering is when we don't have authority over the thing. And when we don't have authority over the thing, it means we don't have the power. And frequently, we don't understand why this is happening. And we don't get answers to our questions. This is all part of the journey of suffering and part of the anguish of it. One of the most towering statements of faith in the entire Bible shows up in Job chapter 13. Job is moving along in the pain and the hardship he's experiencing, and he says this, imagine it. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I will maintain my own ways before him. This is the King James Version, because I think it says it most majestically. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Can you imagine that level of faith? He's saying, look, I I don't understand all that's happening to me. The pain is excruciating, and life is really hard. But what I trust is that God, even if it's really hard, is a bigger God of good than the pain and the hardship that's happening to me. In other words, this level of faith means my entire existence is not about how it's going for me. There are larger realities in play. And Job has a vision of this. And he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. But I also love, he says, but I'll maintain my own ways before him. What it means is, but I'm still going to talk to God about how I don't like it. It's an incredible statement of faith, just incredible. So we need perspective. It's really important for us to know that when we're going through the challenges of suffering and we don't know the answers, and we probably won't know the answers, see, because that is seeking authority, at least if it's only intellectual authority, to make this thing understandable and smaller than us, even just to have intellectual authority over it, even though we still have to suffer with it. A lot of times to have no authority means we won't even have that. We won't know the answers. And so in our anguish, and as Job is saying, but I'll still let God know I'm not happy about it, it's really, really helpful for us 
to embrace some of the things we do know about God. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it never gives us a picture of a God who doesn't care, who doesn't care about our pain and who is cruel in it. In Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many years ago, when we were in a very painful time in our own lives, someone shared with me Psalm 56, verse 8. It says, of God, you keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. This became so helpful to Elizabeth and me in a very, very painful time. This is not a God who's distant and doesn't know who if I was praying, he'd say, what? I didn't know about that. Didn't care about it. No, it's quite the opposite. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have not only that, collected my tears in your bottle. It's a beautiful, poetic, metaphoric way to say, not one of your tears drops that I don't know about, says God. And not only do they not just drop, they don't fall to the earth and disappear. I've got a bottle that's collecting them. So engaged am I with the pain and the difficulty that you're experiencing. And then the phrase, you have recorded each one in your book. What I loved about you have recorded each one in your book was because in this painful time in our lives, and this tends to be common in particularly painful times, you feel that you're so angry. It's just such an injustice. And you say to God, why is this happening? And you don't get all the answers to it. I love this phrase, you've recorded each one in your book, because it reminds me of someone in a courtroom and the judge has rendered a verdict and the person feels that the verdict is completely unjust. The only consolation I've got is to say, let the record show what actually happened. In other words, let the book record it. And even if I don't get justice, even if I don't get things the way I know them to be true or believe them to be true, let the record show. Some aspect of my pain is preserved in the record, and that is a kind of consolation. But this is not just a record that's in some library of volumes in a huge warehouse. This is in the compassion of God's own heart. It's also very important for us to remember that our religion, Christianity, is the only religion where God has experienced the death of a child. Jesus Christ is God's son. When Jesus died on the cross, our God has experienced the death of his own son. I have not experienced, we have not experienced the death of a child, but we have walked closely with many people who have. A lot of research on grief and the journey of grief says the loss, the death of a child is the most painful of the losses. Our God is the only God in the pantheon of religions who has experienced the death of his own son. John Perkins said, without the pain, there is no true love. And in some ways, the power of love increases as the suffering is endured. Knowing Christ's pain takes me to a deeper place with him. The pain of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins are at the core of the gospel. You know, when you have a lot in common with somebody, you can become much better friends with them because you have a lot of mutual understanding. It's really important for us as Christians to remember that Jesus Christ was a suffering servant. If you read Isaiah 53, you get some incredible poetic expressions of his wounds and the suffering that he endured. 
When you experience suffering, you have a lot more in common with Jesus. You can become much closer friends with him. Nicholas Walterstorff had a son who died in a mountain climbing accident when his son was in his 20s. Walterstorff wrote a book called A Lament for a Son, and he spoke about moving through the paces of grief, and he said, slowly the clouds lift. What I saw then was tears, a weeping God, suffering over my suffering. I had not realized that if God loves the world, God suffers. I had thoughtlessly supposed that God loved without suffering. Frederick Beekner is a Christian speaker and writer, and Beekner shared a story that I read recently. He was asked to go speak at a retreat center out in West Texas, a place called Lady Lodge. I've had a chance to go there a couple of times. It's a really unique and special place. And Beekner, in his reflections, talked about his first visit to Lady Lodge. And he was asked to come and speak at a conference gathering. And the person who was in leadership at Lady Lodge had invited him to speak. And Beekner said, what do you want me to speak on? And he said, just come and tell your story. Well, that felt a little obtuse to Beekner. Like, you're going to fly me from New England out to Texas, and I'm going to come speak at a conference. And really, you just want me to tell my story? And the guy said, yeah. Well, Fred Beekner's story is rich in the fabric of sorrow. As a young boy, he grew up with an abusive alcoholic father who killed himself when, he was about, when Beekner was about 10 years old. That whole cycle has all kinds of significance in Beekner's life. After Beekner shared at the gathering, the leader at Lady Lodge, his name is Howard Butt, came up to Beekner and he said, I perceive that you have experienced a good deal of pain and you have stewarded it well. And Beekner writes that this thought of stewarding his pain had never, ever occurred to him. It was a completely revolutionary idea. What Howard Butt was suggesting to him was, you have taken good care of the pain to see that it offers you all of the best benefits that it could. And most of us think, Benefits to pain? Yes, this is what we're talking about today. So Beekner goes on to talk about what does it mean to steward your pain? It means to realize that not one ounce of suffering is wasted if we come into close relationship with God, that beautiful things can be made out of the pain, but so much of whether that happens or not goes back to that fork in the road, remember? Because if we decided the pain was too hard and we're not going to go in that deeper place with God, these invitations to be remade, to become a more beautiful person will be forfeited because we took the other road back at the intersection. Beekner goes on to talk about what does it mean to steward your pain well. In other words, don't waste an ounce of it. Don't dismiss it. Don't turn away from it but move deeply in your relationship with God in the midst of it and watch him do beautiful things. The pain that we have, therefore, might become some of the most significant invitations we will ever have in our lives. Invitations to grow, to grow toward God, to grow as a person, to grow in beauty. Speaking of stewarding your pain, another similar perspective to this from Fodor Dostoevsky said, he said, there's only one thing that I dread, not to be worthy of my sufferings. Suffering will come and we will all experience it. If we grow into this place, if we understand and see the story of Job as a helpful guide in it, 
we can not only become worthy of our sufferings, but we can not waste them. We can grow deeply with God in them. But so much of it will happen about what we did back at the intersection. So Job becomes a remade man. This is part of the power of the story. The story of Job is the story of a remade man. It's a story of a victorious faith. Faith meaning, I stayed with this God when I didn't know and I didn't have the answers. It's also a victory over the devil. We shouldn't avoid that. The devil is going to tempt Job to turn away and to defy God, and he doesn't do it. It's a victorious faith that's over the power of the devil. Job's story is a challenging one. He's got three friends that come to him in the midst of his suffering who tell him to chuck his faith, and they give him all kinds of formulaic reasons this is happening to him, and they're all wrong. And then his wife tells him, I don't know why you're staying with this God. If I were you, I would chuck this. So not only is it a victorious faith, it's a persevering faith. And he's got people in his life telling him to jump ship on the whole endeavor, and he won't do that. So Dallas Willard said, it's noteworthy that when Job finally stood before God, he was completely satisfied and at rest, though not a single one of his questions about his sufferings had been answered. His questions were good questions. He didn't sin in asking them, but in the light of God himself, they were simply pointless. They just drop away and they lose their interest. Occasionally, I have conversations with people and they say, well, when I get to heaven and I meet God, I've got some questions I want to ask him. And I understand that. I'm sympathetic, but I have a feeling that when you stand in God's presence, those questions aren't going to matter anymore. The glory of the one we're beholding is going to make those questions seem far away. But one of the most important things for us to do to grow in the journeys of suffering is to create a much richer understanding of heaven. I think this is a very missing piece in the modern American church. We have dismissed heaven. We don't think about it. We don't talk about it. There's so many trinkets and shiny things in our world that all of our attentions have been focused on this life, this earth, and heaven seems like some small little after thing. Without a robust vision of heaven, our sufferings will become all the worse. But with a full, robust vision of heaven, which begins biblically to tell us that this life we're living is so short. It's just a tiny snapshot. Heaven is the long arc of eternal life for which we are most substantially made in an eternal relationship with God, where every joy is fulfilled, where every longing is met, where every love we, where every love we hope for is filled where there's no more pain or suffering. Without a robust version and vision of heaven, then our pain feels all the more painful because it feels like, well, then this life is just a bust. And if this life is where all the payout is and it stinks, then this whole thing is just a charade, a scam. But a vibrant vision of heaven brings a new perspective to it, particularly when we're standing at a graveside. So Job becomes a remade man. Years ago, somebody shared with me a book called The Weathering Grace of God by Ken Geyer. There are lots of really good books about grief, but I found this one to be the most helpful to me. And Ken Geyer uses the analogy that our grief and our suffering in life is often like natural phenomenon that create real hardships, like forest fires, and they completely decimate the forest, but in time, new green sprigs begin to grow up or earthquakes, or volcanic eruptions. And he uses this natural metaphor to help us see that, yes, when we're in this kind of pain, it feels like the ground itself has shifted. 
that the very foundations of our lives don't seem to be stable, but then going through these places of hardship with a sincere seeking of God, he begins to make us new and the green sprigs of new life begin to grow up. One of the great gifts is that if we're able to move toward God, he can free us of so many of the binding challenges that came with the false beliefs we had. Psalm 18:19 says, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Many people who have been through pain will say things like, I wouldn't wish it again, but I also wouldn't trade it. The freedom and the life that God has given me and what he's shown me through this, that he's led me into the spacious place, he's freed me of my superficialities, my sarcasms, my false beliefs. He's freed me of so many of the tyrannies of the voices inside my own head, and it was pain that stripped all that false stuff away. So the weathering grace of God talks about how the ground gets completely churned up, and in the process, God can do beautiful things. So I'm going to close with two little approaches here. One of them is sometimes in a sermon like this, people say, could you give me some things to do or give me some perspectives to pursue? So I'm going to try to offer you some things that I hope could be practically helpful when you experience pain and suffering. We'll post this stuff on social media and website and stuff, so don't worry about writing them down if you're inclined to, but here are a few things that I might offer. One, create a library of verses that speak of God's help and promises and suffering. Consider Jesus' sufferings and God's grief as his father when you're in your own. Pray deeply for closeness to God while expressing your grief to him. Share your sadness and your brokenness with the right trusted people. Pursue the perspective of how you are being made more beautiful. Journal your thoughts and feelings to God and what's changing in you, and increase your knowledge and your understanding of heaven. So in Ken Geyer's metaphor of how the ground gets turned up so God can create beautiful things, I want to close by reading you a poem called Harrowing. It's by Parker Palmer. The plow has savaged this sweet field, misshapen clods of earth kicked up, Rocks and twisted roots exposed to view. Last year's growth demolished by the blade. I have plowed my life this way, turned over a whole history, looking for the roots of what went wrong until my face is ravaged, furrowed, scarred. Enough, the job is done. Whatever's been uprooted, let it be seedbed for the growing that's to come. I plowed to unearth last year's reasons. The farmer plows to plant a greening season. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we speak about things of which we know so little. And we speak words of prayer to you. You high and lifted up, beautiful, powerful, victorious, and you, mysterious, you, the God who is too big for us to gain authority over you by putting words and formulas to who you are. And suffering reminds us of all of this. So Lord, in the room today, we pray for one another, for those who are right in the midst of pain 
the crucibles of which seem unbearable. We pray, Holy Spirit, for your power, your presence, for hope, and for healing. And Father, help us to move forward as people who understand that your promises and your broken heart is woven into the challenges of our lives and that you, Jesus Christ, are the one who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to you, Lord Christ. We pray in your name.